I'm Christopher Leiden, and this is Open Source. It is said about Noam Chomsky that he has been to the study of language what Isaac Newton was to the study of gravity after the apple hit his head. Chomsky had the aha insight that the power of language is born into our biology. It's not acquired later. Chomsky and linguistics came to explain how the human species alone got that gift of language. But it's not the only reason Professor Chomsky is on our minds this summer of 2023. Frail and quiet, approaching his 95th birthday in the fall, Chomsky has been for half a century the model of Socrates in the American square, the public pest with questions that sting. So we are listening again to some of our best encounters with this fortress of science and political dissent. This one was in his MIT office in 2017. I'm Christopher Leiden. This is Open Source. A world in trouble beats a path to Noam Chomsky's door, if only because he's been forthright for so long about a whirlwind coming. Not that the world quite knows what to do with Noam Chomsky's thoughts on disaster in the making. Here was the famous unpleasantness from the patrician TV host William F. Buckley Jr. meeting Chomsky's icy anger about the war in Vietnam in 1969. I rejoice in your disposition to argue the Vietnam question, especially when I recognize what an act of self-control this must uh, involve. It does. Sure. It really does. I mean, I think and, that this is the kind of well. issue where... very well. No, sometimes I lose my temper. Maybe not tonight. Maybe not tonight. <laughs> Uh, because uh, if you would, I'd smash you in the goddamn face. <laughs> the, uh, you say you say in your book reason for not losing. <laughs> Strange thing about Noam Chomsky: the New York Times calls him arguably the most important public thinker alive, though the paper seldom quotes him or argues with him, and giant pop media like network television never do. And yet, the man is universally famous in his 89th year and almost familiar. He's the scientist who taught us to think of human language as something embedded in our biology, not as a social acquisition. And he's the humanist who railed against the Vietnam War and other projections of American power on moral grounds first, ahead of practical or political considerations. Noam Chomsky is a rock star on college campuses here and abroad. He's still an alien where policy gets made. On his home ground at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, he is a notably accessible old professor who answers his own email and receives visitors like us the other day with a twinkle. I had written him that we wanted to hear not what he thinks, but how. He had written back that hard work and an open mind have a lot to do with it, plus, in his words, a Socratic-like willingness to ask whether conventional doctrines are justified. My agenda was open-ended. All we want you to do is to explain where in the world we are. That's easy. <laughs> <laughs> but when people, so many people were on the edge of something, something historic. Is there a Chomsky summary? Brief summary? Yeah. Well, a brief summary, I think, is uh, if you take a look at recent history since the Second World War, mm -hmm. uh, something really remarkable has happened. First, uh, human intelligence created two huge sledgehammers mm. uh, capable of terminating our existence, or at least organize existence, both from the Second World War. One of them is familiar. In fact, both are by now familiar. 
Second World War ended with the use of nuclear weapons. It was immediately obvious on August 6, 1945, a day that I remember very well, mm -hmm. uh, it was obvious that uh, soon uh, technology would develop uh, to the point where it would lead to terminal disaster. The scientists certainly understood this. In 1947, the uh, Bulletin of Atomic Scientists inaugurated its uh, famous doomsday clock. You know, how close is sure. the minute hand to midnight? And uh, it started seven minutes to midnight. Uh, by 1953, it had moved to two minutes to midnight. Uh, that was the year when the United States and Soviet Union exploded hydrogen bombs. But it, it turns out, we now understand, that at the end of the Second World War, the world also entered into a new geological epoch. It's called the Anthropocene, the epoch in which uh, humans have a, a severe, in fact, maybe disastrous impact on the environment. Moved again in 2015, again in 2016. Immediately after the Trump election, late January this mm. year, the clock was moved again to two and a half minutes to midnight. Okay. Closest to spin since 53. So there's the two uh, existential threats that we've created, which might, in the case of nuclear war, maybe wipe us out, in case of environmental catastrophe, severe impact. And then some, a third thing happened. Beginning around the 70s, human intelligence dedicated itself to eliminating, or at least weakening, the main barrier against the threats. It's called neoliberalism. There was a transition at that period from the period of what some people call regimented capitalism, 50s and 60s, the great growth period, egalitarian growth, a lot of advances in social justice and so on. Social democracy, in social, effect. Yeah. That's sometimes called the golden age of modern capitalism. Right. That changed in the 70s and with the onset of the neoliberal era that we've been living in since. And if you ask yourself what this era is, its crucial principle is undermining mechanisms of social solidarity and mutual hmm. support and uh, popular engagement in determining policy. It's not called that. What's called is freedom. Uh, but freedom means uh, subordination to the decisions mm -hmm. of concentrated, unaccountable private power. That's what it means. The institutions of governance or other kinds of association that could allow people to participate in decision-making, those are systematically weakened. Margaret Thatcher said it rather nicely in her aphorism about there is no society, only individuals. She was actually uh, unconsciously, no doubt, paraphrasing Marx, who uh, in his condemnation of the repression in France uh, said the repression is turning society into a sack of potatoes, uh, just individuals, amorphous mass, can't act together. That was a condemnation. For Thatcher, it's an ideal, mm. uh, and that's neoliberalism. Well, what does that do? The one barrier to the threat of destruction is an informed, engaged public acting together to develop means to confront the threat and respond to it. And that's systematically weakened, 
consciously. Mm-hmm. I mean, back to the 1970s, we've probably talked about this, there was a lot of elite discussion across the spectrum about the danger of too much democracy and the need to uh, have what was called more moderation in democracy, not for people to become more passive and apathetic and uh, not to disturb things too much. And that's what the neoliberal programs do. So put it all together and what do you have? A perfect storm. What everybody notices is all the headline things, including Brexit and Donald Trump and Hindu nationalism and nationalism everywhere and Le Pen, all kicking in more or less together and suggesting some real world phenomenon. Oh, it's very clear, and it was predictable. You didn't know exactly when, but when you impose socioeconomic policies that lead to stagnation or decline for the majority of the population, undermine democracy, remove decision-making out of popular hands, you're going to get anger, discontent, uh, fear, uh, take all kinds of forms, Mm. and uh, that's the phenomenon that's misleadingly called populism. I don't know what you think of Pankaj Mishra, but I enjoy his book, Age of Anger, and he he begins with an anonymous letter to a newspaper from somebody who says, we should admit that we are not only horrified, but baffled. Nothing since the triumph of vandals in Roman North Africa has seemed so suddenly incomprehensible and difficult to reverse. Well, that's the fault of the information system because it's very comprehensible and very obvious and very simple. Hmm. So take a look at, say, the United States, which actually suffered less from these policies than many other countries. Take uh, the year 2007, crucial year, uh, right before the crash. What was the wondrous economy that was being praised? It was one in which the real wages of American workers were actually lower than they were in 1979 Mm. when the neoliberal period began. That's historically unprecedented, Mm. except for trauma or, you know, war or something like that. Here's a long period in which real wages had literally declined. There was some wealth created, but in very few pockets. It was also a period in which new institutions developed, financial institutions. You go back to the 50s and 60s, the so-called golden age, uh, banks were connected to the real economy. That was their function. There were also no crashes because there were Mm. New Deal regulations. Starting in the early 70s, there was a sharp change. First of all, financial institutions exploded in scale. By 2007, they actually had 40% of corporate profits. Furthermore, they weren't connected to the real economy anymore. That was the period of euphoria, except for the population. It's in Europe, in many ways, it got worse under what was called austerity. And Europe, the way uh, democracy is undermined, is very direct. Uh, Decisions are placed in the hands of an unelected troika. The European Commission, which is unelected, the IMF, of course, unelected, the European Central Bank. They make the decisions. So people are very angry. We just saw it two weeks ago in the last French election. The two candidates were both outside the establishment. Centrist political parties have collapsed. We saw it in the American election last November. 
there were two candidates who mobilized the base. Uh, one of them, a billionaire hated by the establishment, the Republican candidate who won the nomination. Uh, but notice that uh, once he's in power, it's the old establishment that's running things. Uh, you can rail against Goldman Sachs on the campaign trail, but you make sure that they run the economy once you're in. But from the popular point of view, that's the opposite of what they want. Same thing happened on the Democratic side. The most remarkable feature of the November election Hmm. was the Sanders campaign. I mean, that broke. It's not all that startling if a billionaire wins a nomination. But if somebody comes from the outside with no support from uh, any of the funding sources, corporate America or wealth, disdained or ignored by the media, uh, even used a scare word, socialist, uh, would have won the Democratic nomination if it hadn't been for the machinations of uh, party managers. But I don't understand why it's incomprehensible, because it's very simple. Coming up, a bit of biographical background in Chomsky thinking. It starts with astonishment at the inborn capacity of the human brain, unlike any other, to form thought in language. This is Open Source. The Noam Chomsky Hour. How did he come to be the most widely cited author, innovator in the literature of contemporary science? And after that, a sort of byword for rational humanism in the politics of dissent. We asked Robert Barsky the author of two books on Chomsky, for the short form. If you look to his early work and his work on Cartesian linguistics, you realize that it comes out of a few principal basic insights. The first one is that we are not machines, that we don't learn on the basis of a blank slate, that we don't learn language the way that we learn other things, the evidence being that very young children say things that they have never heard before which would suggest that we have the equipment already present in our brains to produce, understand human language from birth. Any human being who is subjected even to the smallest amount of linguistic input is able to create a very complex and rich linguistic world. But it's different than from walking or dancing or fighting. It's different and it's not. He talks about it as an organ, but I think even more interestingly is a deferred ability such as sexuality. We are clearly sexual beings. We're endowed with the propensity, proclivity, and so forth for sexuality. It makes itself manifest at 12 years old or 13 years old, 14 years old later on, but it's already present. And so it is a natural ability. On the other hand, it's also affected by the context within which it is made manifest. So in that sense, interestingly, although we're more or less identical, we're also all different because our endowment will react with the environment around it. People like to see two Chomskys, Robert. I try to imagine one synthesizing the scientific impulse to explain how language makes babies human incredibly fast, but also in the peacenik side of his social activism, how we're missing something in our language to preserve the species for all time. Is there any uniting these two impulses? I have 
discussed this with him a lot and suggested that, in fact, there are very interesting points of, in, in which the two come together. One of them is his resistance to those powers and ideas that are imposed upon us. At the end of the day, so much of Noam Chomsky's work is about power. It's about those people who are in power, those people who are disempowered, those people who are seeking power, those people who are outside of the realm of seeking power. And the question for him becomes, how do we catalyze that profound ability that everybody has? Because if power is in the business of teaching us how to be good consumers, if power is in the business of keeping us down, if power is in the business of teaching us how to vote against our own best interests, Hmm. then what is the opposite? The opposite is, how do you promote creativity? How do you promote people's ability to think for themselves? How do you promote people's understanding of their connection to the people around them in ways that are going to benefit themselves and their environment as opposed to just allow them to have more power? That, I think, is at the very heart of Noam Chomsky linguistically, in terms of academics, and in terms of his social thought. Robert Barsky wrote Noam Chomsky, A Life of Dissent, 20 years ago, and then The Chomsky Effect, a radical works beyond the ivory tower. Professor Barsky teaches law and literature at Vanderbilt University. Back in Noam Chomsky's office, I was looking for a bridge between his linguistic science and his politics. Noam Chomsky, several times recently I've read from you a kind of one-sentence history of science, and it goes roughly that The moment when people admit that they are puzzled are the moments when things actually happen. When Newton, for example, discovers that, to his own dismay, the world does not operate like a machine. Which he didn't believe, incidentally. Sorry? He discovered it, but he regarded it as what he called an absurdity that no person with any scientific understanding could ever accept. But he, he broke the turf. I think also the moment when, at some moment, when the apple fell on your head and you said, wait a sec, it's impossible that babies could learn language by imitation in so short a span and a whole new field In fact, blossomed. they couldn't learn it by imitation if they had 10,000 years because <laughs> exactly. there's no way to do it. <laughs> so the question is, at a moment when people are almost ready, well, they're ready to act and almost ready to recognize that that this game is not working, the social system, do we have the endowment as a species to act on it, to move into that zone of puzzlement and then action? I think the fate of the species depends on it. Because remember, it's not just inequality, uh, stagnation, it's terminal disaster. We have constructed a perfect storm. That should be the screaming headlines every day. Since the Second World War, we have created two means of destruction. Since the neoliberal era, we have dismantled the way of handling them. Those, that's a pincers. That's what we face. And if that problem isn't solved, we're done with. Go back to uh, Pankaj Mishra and the age of anger. For a it's not the age of anger, it's the age of resentment yep. against socioeconomic policies which have harmed 
the majority of the population for a generation and have consciously and in principle undermined democratic participation. Why shouldn't there be anger? Pankaj Mishra calls it, it's a Nietzschean word, ressentiment, meaning this kind of explosive rage, but he says it's the defining feature of a world where the modern promise of equality collides with massive disparities of power, education, status, and which was property ownership. That way, which was designed that way. Yeah. Go back to the 1970s. Uh, there was a, across the spectrum, elite spectrum, there was deep concern about the activism of the 60s. It's called the time of troubles. Mm. It civilized the country, which is dangerous. What happened is that uh, large parts of the population, uh, which had been passive, um, apathetic, uh, obedient, uh, uh, tried to enter the political arena in one or another way to press their interests and concerns. Uh, They're called special interests. That means minorities, uh, young people, uh, old people, uh, farmers, uh, workers, women. In other words, the population. The population are special interests, and their task is to just watch quietly. And that was explicit. Two documents came out right in the mid-'70s, which are quite important, opposite ends of the political spectrum, both influential, both reached the same conclusions. Uh, One of them at the, it's called the left end, the Trilateral Commission, Liberal Internationalists, uh, three major industrial countries. It's basically the Carter administration. That's where they come from, which is the more interesting one. The uh, American rapporteur, Samuel Huntington of Harvard, uh, he looked back with nostalgia to the days when, as he put it, uh, Truman was able to run the country with the cooperation of a few Wall Street lawyers and uh, executives. Then everything was fine. Democracy was perfect. But in the 60s, they all agreed it became problematic because the special interests started trying to get into the act. And that causes too much pressure on the state. Can't handle that. I remember that book well. Uh, We have to have more moderation in democracy. Not only that, he he turned Al Smith's line around. Al Smith said the cure for democracy is more democracy. He said, no, the cure for this democracy is less democracy. It wasn't him. It was the liberal establishment. He was speaking for them. This is a consensus view of the liberal internationalists in the three industrial democracies. In their consensus, they concluded that a major problem is what they called their words, the institutions responsible for the indoctrination of the young. The schools, the universities, churches, they're not doing their job. They're not indoctrinating the young properly. Uh, The young have to be returned to passivity and obedience, and then democracy will be fine. That's the left end. Now, what do you have at the right end? A very influential document. Hmm. The Powell Memorandum came out at the same time. Right. Lewis Powell, a corporate lawyer, later Supreme Court Justice, he uh, produced a confidential memorandum for the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, which has been extremely influential. It more or less set off the modern so-called conservative movement. The rhetoric is kind of crazy, but the don't have to go through it. But the basic picture is that 
this uh, rampaging left has taken over everything. Uh, we have to use the resources that we have to beat back this uh, rampaging uh, new left, which mm. is undermining freedom and democracy. Connected with this was something else. As a result of the activism of the 60s and the militancy of labor, there was a falling rate of profit. That's not acceptable. So we have to reverse the falling rate of profit. We have to undermine uh, democratic participation. Uh, what comes? Neoliberalism, yeah. which has exactly those effects. So, you famously said about neoliberalism that it's not new and it's not liberal. Do you want to define it for people who just landed from Mars? Well, it's a kind of a mixture. It, the rhetoric is free market, individual choice, and so on. That's the rhetoric. The reality is rather different. It's individualism and market for you, but state power for me. So take a look, say, at the uh, actual institutions like the World Trade Organization, or NAFTA, the, what are called the free trade agreements. The media calls them free trade agreements. They're mm -hmm. not free trade agreements. They're investor rights agreements. They're highly protectionist. They provide unprecedented protection backed by state power for major uh, uh, conglomerates like the pharmaceutical industry, uh, media conglomerates, others. I get it, and I think people get it. Uh, but Oftentimes, you have said that politics is simple, child's play compared to the science that's done, you know, within a stone throw of this building, if not in this building. Why is it the science, though, gets more effectively to the simple rules, the simple understanding that gives clarity than politics does, especially in this age? I mean, people are dying for some, I think, the bold headline that you're suggesting, but it's harder somehow. Yeah. I mean, take the trivial, obvious example. Uh, you've taken an economics course. And what do you learn about markets? They're marvelous because in a market, informed consumers make rational choices. That's us. Hmm. Uh, turn on the television set. Are you seeing an effort to create rational, uh, informed consumers who make rational choices? What you say is a massive effort, uh, hundreds of millions of dollars a year spent on it, to create uninformed consumers who will make irrational choices, meaning business is dedicated to undermining markets. They hate markets. You've got to undermine them. We have to make sure that it's uninformed consumers making irrational choices uh, driven to uh, atomization and consumerism instead of paying attention to important things. That's what we're doing. Do, do you get taught that in an economics course? That the a main commitment of the business world is to undermine markets. And what about political choices? Same thing. We're told that we have a choice between the left and the right. Right. Uh, we're told, for example, let's be concrete. We're told that Sanders represented a political revolution. Left-wing demagogue. Yeah. Oh, we're told that the, the, the Democratic candidate was a breakthrough for the females of the species and uh, would make history in that dimension. It's a little, I'd put it a little differently. There was a woman's movement which became so significant and powerful that the elite had to react to it in some fashion hmm. by uh, weakening the glass ceiling slightly so that some women could get in. 
But in fact, if you take a look at the history, it's, I mean, you look at the history of mm. the, the treatment of women, which we ought to know, you go back to the founding of the country. Uh, the U.S., of course, took over British common law, Blackstone. Women weren't people. They were property. A woman was the property of her father who handed it over to her husband. He was the owner of the property. In fact, uh, some of the arguments against uh, allowing women to vote were that it would be unfair to unmarried men because a married man would have two votes, himself and the property, like a slave owner. He had three-fifths rule, which gave more representation to slave owners. Well, it changed slowly over the years, but pretty slowly. In fact, it wasn't until 1975, under the pressure of the feminist movement, that the Supreme Court determined that women can be peers, that they have a right to serve in federal juries as peers. It's not that long ago. And it wasn't that the Democratic Party said, oh, yeah, this is a great idea. It's that they were pressed to accept this. Yeah. So why are people uninformed? I mean, why don't they see what's in front of their eyes? They see enough to act against what the, but the, what the establishment was telling them. They react the way Mishra is describing, with anger. That's not the right response. The right response is understanding and constructive action. Change it. Not anger, not fear, not hatred of others. Not saying, uh, let's make sure that Mexico, that Central Americans can't get here. That's diverting the anger from the targets to some scapegoat. Same in Europe. I mean, in Europe, it's shocking. There's a recent poll in Europe which found that a majority of Europeans think that no Muslims should be allowed into Europe. I mean, anybody who can remember the 1930s, mm. as I can, has to be pretty frightened about that. The gatekeeper in and out of Chomsky world at MIT is a sprightly writer and wit named Beverly Stoll. She has learned over most of two decades that a lot of laughter helps in living with genius. She let me ask her a question that I hadn't put to him. Bev, it's my premise sort of serious that 2117, 100 years from now, he might be the only person in this neighborhood that anybody ever remembers. Of all the celebrities and thinkers and whatnot, teachers, Noam Chomsky might be remembered as the dissenting spirit of the age. And people will say, what the hell was he like? What drove him? Noam is just about the truth. Who is his audience out there? I've seen old hippies. I've seen young students. I see all colors, I see all mm. nationalities, and some cry just out of gratitude for what he does. What does he mean to them, do you think? Freedom. They talk about democracy when they see him. You know, we've had people come who were presidents, prime ministers, but it's the people, the regular people. You know, I often wonder when he goes out and talks, is he preaching to the converted? You know, are these all of his fans? But every day I hear from people, gee, I just heard about you. I just read one of your books. It's really everybody. I've had 14-year-old boys come in here with their parents, making their parents wait outside so they can come in and discuss all of the books that they've read of Noam Chomsky's with him. That just blows me away because it's not easy to get through a Noam Chomsky book. What are the rest of the people missing? who don't see him every day coming in to work? I would say the thing that they're missing is his sense of humor, hmm. his sense of playfulness, 
He loved when his grandchildren were little to make up games. For instance, he'd take a stick and he'd put it in the sand. And this is very gnome-like. He'd put a stick in the sand on the cape when the kids were there, and then they'd go to bed. And overnight, he would take a larger stick, and he'd, he'd tell the kids that the stick had grown. And they, they sort of always went along with it, knowing that he was only joking, but maybe in a way they thought it was a little magical. So he loves magic. He loves the magic of, uh, of childhood, and he's playful. Coming up, what feels like a turn in Noam Chomsky's taste from confrontation to kinship. This is Open Source. Over the years, Noam Chomsky has defended his heavyweight debating title against all comers. YouTube has him in the ring with Michel Foucault on the nature of human nature, with Alan Dershowitz on Israel, with John Silber on Central America. Far the most watched is the almost 50-year-old tape of Noam Chomsky in a very personal tangle with the host of Firing Line on PBS, the late William F. Buckley Jr., on the matter of killing in Vietnam. You say the war is simply an obscenity, a depraved act by weak and miserable men. Including all of us, including myself, including every... That's the next sentence. Same yeah. sentence. Sure, 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 sure. Yeah. Because you count everybody in the company of the guilty. I think that's true in this case. Uh, yeah. But the, See, then, one of the points I was trying... This is a sense of theological observation, isn't it? Uh, no, I don't think so. Because as somebody points out, if everybody's guilty of everything, then nobody's guilty of anything. No, I don't, well, that. No, I don't, I don't believe that. See, yeah. I, think that, I think the point that I'm trying to make, and I think ought to be made, is that the real, uh, at least to me, I say this elsewhere in the book, the, what seems to me uh, a very in a sense, terrifying aspect of our society and other societies is the equanimity and the detachment with which sane, reasonable, sensible people mm-hmm. can observe such events. I think that's more terrifying than the occasional Hitler or LeMay or other that crops up. I, I just want to say about the, the Buckley debate, I look back on it, millions of people do too, on YouTube, with a certain amazement. He's doing all of his lordly debating tricks, and you're unflapped, words well chosen, facts clear, and you win by a kind of um, patience and decency. And uh, it strikes me, we can see your, your career in that tape. I'm also thinking that, you know, among all the stars of our university neighborhood around here, uh, you may be the one who's, who's remembered 100 years from now. I mean, so I don't mean to overdo it, but I, we, we listen to you with huge... Remember, this is all very simple. It's all in front of our eyes. All you have to do is look. Takes no profound intelligence, takes no special insight. Uh, Just look at what's in front of your eyes. It's right there. And in fact, Mm. I think a lot of people see it in various ways. So take, say, uh, a topic that's right in the headlines now, healthcare. Uh, The U.S., Healthcare system is an international scandal, has about twice the per capita costs of comparable countries, uh, uh, relatively poor outcomes, uh, slightly improved by the Affordable Care Act, but which is some improvement, but nowhere near other countries. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do the people think? Uh, you go to Mass General Hospital, uh, take a look at what they're doing there. You know, on every floor, there's a desk with a bunch of people uh, doing paperwork, administrative work, 
billing, you know, uh, figuring out how the insurance companies uh, can get paid off on something or other. You go to the same hospital in Canada, there's nothing there. In fact, that's been studied. This is the problem. How can the people be so shrewd, so decisive, and be ignored? What democracy gave us two candidates, both from outside the establishment, Trump and Sanders, who mobilized the base. Clinton didn't. Actually, the policies they were calling for were not that different and not that crazy. And the policies that are being enacted kick them in the face. Trump's policies are almost specifically, it's as if some evil demon is sitting there laughing. You take a look at the policies, they are directed to kicking his constituency in the face, literally, case by case. Uh, It's a rural, um, white working class, uh, that sector of his voters. Every step that has been taken, including the budget, is aimed at undermining them, step after step. The question is, how long are they going to take it? And when they decide... That is the question. We're we're awaiting the Galileo moment in politics when people say, wait a sec, that theory just plain doesn't hold up anymore. It's it's falling... But think what's going to happen. Suppose that the rural, white working class base recognizes that Trump is their worst enemy, that every program that's getting pushed through, basically the Paul Ryan programs, are aimed at undermining them. How are they going to react? And what is the Republican Party going to do? Mm. We know they're going to turn to scapegoating, try to divert the anger somewhere else. Uh, Immigrants, uh, Muslims, uh, homosexuals, who knows what it'll be. We've been through this before in history, over and over. It can turn out pretty ugly. Help us with the analogy of the scientific process and the political process. In the scientific world, after Galileo, the whole scientific community adjusts. Um, We seem to see a great mass of American people and voters seem to understand that there's something profoundly wrong here by our own standards, not the standards of perfection, but a, a moderately free, open, give and take, egalitarian spirit that people remember either sentimentally or from their childhood, and it's in danger. How do you activate the political decision the way scientific world activates itself around new principles, a new understanding of old fallacies? That's what activism is about. It's trying to reach people in their own terms, in their own lives, in their own problems, and trying to help them perceive what's happening. Yeah. Noam Chomsky, a lot of people separate your scientific mind and your political activism. I, I try to synthesize them or see what's in common. What, I, what strikes me is that in your work on the child's acquisition of language, you locate that endowment inherent in the human being to communicate but you locate an ability for language that makes the human being. In your politics, it strikes me, we're all looking to you to locate the endowment that lets us work together for the common good and the survival, even. I mean, we don't understand a lot about uh, human nature, but one of its 
aspects is mutual aid and solidarity. Uh, other aspects are greed and hatred. Uh, social economic conditions uh, uh, help affect, they don't determine, but they certainly influence uh, which of these aspects of human nature come to predominate. Uh, mm. If you live in a society that uh, respects and rewards uh, greed and uh, uh, disregard of others and uh, uh, getting ahead and look out for number one and mm. hell with everything else, yes, those aspects of human nature will come to predominate. If you have a functional family where people actually help each other and care for each other, other aspects come out. We actually have both. So one advantage of the United States over Europe, crucial advantage, is that there's a, the institutions have a kind of built-in solidarity. So for example, if Nevada is uh, suffering from a recession, New York pays for it. We don't even pay attention to it. Uh, Mississippi gets subsidized by New York. That doesn't happen in Europe. Mm. Uh, Greece doesn't get subsidized by Germany, quite the opposite. Germany tries to punish Greece. That's an advantage of the U.S. system, and it's built in. Uh, there are all kinds of things. You know. Mm. Do you analogize the activation of language equipment that suddenly blossoms like a huge garden and then keeps varying... Do you analogize that to a sort of social instinct for preservation of the species, for solidarity, for mutual support? And, and how in the world do we activate it under a deadline well, now? It would be nice to try to connect them. And in fact, if, if you look back at earlier periods, say the Enlightenment, read, say, uh, Rousseau's Second Discourse on Inequality, kind of an effort, not in these terms, to link the creativity that's inherent in normal language use to uh, a conception of society that says that anything that constrains uh, creative, independent thought and action is illegitimate. Wilhelm von Humboldt, founder of the modern university system, right. so he had similar ideas. There's an effort to connect them, but it's not a logical connection. It's a, a sense that somehow there might be some unity there, and maybe there is. Your authorities go way back, and it, it's the part of Noam Chomsky that, that doesn't surface in day-to-day -day interviews. I mean, speak of some of them, including, well, I'd love you to speak about Bertrand Russell in the modern time, but even the your favorites in the in the Scottish Enlightenment, Enlightenment generally, who of them speaks to our situation today? Well, we have to pick and choose. Take, say, David Hume, who had some real insights into uh, the nature of politics, I think. Mm -hmm. He said, you have this strange paradox. He says, in every society, uh, power is in the hands of the governed. They're the ones who really have power, but they don't use it they're willing to subordinate themselves to authorities. And he says, by what miracle is this uh, reached? And he said, it's control of opinion. Mm. It's by control of opinion alone that the nobles and the autocrats and the gentlemen succeed in getting the public to accept uh, being abused and repressed. Well, there's some point to that.
manufacturing consent, so to speak. He didn't use the phrase. That <laughs> waited for Walter Lippmann, <laughs> who advocated um, it, incidentally. We, we forget that the phrase was used by liberal uh, Democrats who advocated it. They said that's the essence of democracy. They were Hume's noblemen and autocrats. <laughs> I want your take on something I observe about Noam Chomsky in recent times. I mean, you were famous as a controversialist, as a, as a debater, and famous for confrontation. Now, if we had the slightest concern with democracy, which we do not in our foreign affairs and never have, we would turn to countries where we have influence, like El Salvador. Oops, May I continue? Very, I did well, not interrupt don't you. Don't ever want to put they, a time value they, on For example, this was Chomsky versus Boston University's President John Silber debating the Contra War in Nicaragua in the 1980s in front of me on public television. I'm talking about, 19, I'm talking about 1980s. You are a systematic I'm liar. Did these that, things happen or didn't they? Th- these things did not happen in the context in which you suggested really? at all. And it's time that yeah. the people well, read you correctly. Uh, it's, it's clear, it's clear it's, why you want to divert me from the discussion. That no, I'm, it's not. Yeah, it's no, but let me get tired of rubbish. Excuse me. The, uh, Arturo Cruz... Exactly More recently, I'm just fascinated by the kinships in your life that I wouldn't have expected. Three, for example. Yanis Varoufakis, the Greek finance minister. You did a marvelous show with him at the New York Public Library. But also... I'm thinking Arundhati Roy, the Indian writer. And for me, most touching in a certain way was you and Harry Belafonte at the Riverside Church in New York, uh, two men well into their 80s, incredible contrasts of their focus, their fame, and yet one sensed a terrific harmony. It was beautiful to see. What's that like for you, to becoming known now for these convergences as well as the hostilities? These are all three people who I like and respect very much. They're very different, quite different. But they're all extremely important and courageous and honorable in their own ways. Speak of them for you. I mean, Giannis, how did you get to know Giannis? Uh, well, through common interests, really. Uh, we, I'd never met him before. This was our first meeting. But I read his work. He'd read my work. We actually collaborate to some extent. Uh, one of the important things that he's done, I think, is uh, to uh, initiate a movement in Europe. It's called DM25, mm. which is a, an effort to try to mobilize Europeans to combat the in Europe, it's called austerity, the neoliberal programs that are severely harming Europe and undermining democracy, mm. but to do it in a way which saves the European Union, doesn't undermine it. It tries to maintain and develop the positive aspects of the European Union, and there are many. I mean, the fact that you can travel from you know France to Poland uh, without knowing where you are mm. instead of shooting each other, that's a big improvement. So preserve the good parts of the European Union while overcoming the very harmful parts, like the stranglehold of the euro without a political union. That's destructive. Arundhati is an amazing person, absolutely amazing. Uh, Have you met her? Sure. And she's got a new book out, which I'm dying to read. Yeah, she's uh, actually one of the most uh, interesting encounters I had with her, there have been a number, was at the uh, World Social Forum in Brazil Mm. back in the early 2000s. Uh, The two of us were on a forum uh, 
uh, with about 20,000 people there in a huge auditorium. And she's a tiny little person with a soft voice. (laughs) If she had the audience sitting in her hand, it was unbelievable to watch, for good reasons. And she's done some wonderful things. Fought a lot of dams in India and staying strong in the Hindu revival. Standing up to the Supreme Court. She's under constant threat of severe punishment. When the court goes after her, she just goes right back after them. And you and uh, Harry Belafonte, what's that like? Well, I mean, I'd never met him before either, but of course I followed his career, uh, which is a very distinguished career of significant, courageous dedication to important causes. Also... On your wall here, I've never asked you about Bertrand Russell, this kind of, what's to say, British Einstein, genius, 20th century genius in mathematics, also unbelievably active, militant, against war. All his life, he stayed in William James's house in Cambridge in 1896 when he was 20 years old, and he was out in Trafalgar Square in 1962 saying, why does Jack Kennedy want to blow up the world? What's your connection Bertrand Russell? Yeah. Well, first of all, I've been very much interested in his philosophical and logical work. But the other is exactly what you're describing, his dedication to serious causes. In World War I, he was in jail protesting the war. He was pretty much excluded from polite British society um, as a result. And then again, as you say, he was demonstrating in his late 70s, early 80s in Trafalgar Square and about the Vietnam War and nuclear war. In fact, he was asked then, I think late 50s, he was asked once, uh, why are you uh, wasting your time with CND uh, demonstrations when you could be working on logic and philosophy and doing something of lasting significance? And his answer wasn't bad. He said, if I'm not out there demonstrating, there won't be any around to read the logic and philosophy. (laughs) That's a pretty good response. (laughs) Noam Chomsky, it's a great pleasure. Uh, it's It's an educational experience to sit and listen. Thank you. Thanks. Noam Chomsky's latest book is Requiem for the American Dream, Ten Principles of Concentration of Wealth and power. Thanks also to Bev Stoll and Robert Barsky. We also had invaluable help from George Shilaba. There's loads more on our website, links, extras, and illustrations from Susan Coyne. You can also read a transcript of our interview and see a video of it at thenation.com. Our show this week was produced by Connor Gillies, Zach Goldhammer, Frank Horton, and Becca DiGregorio. George Hicks is our engineer. Mary McGrath is our executive producer. I'm Christopher Leiden. Join us next time on Open Source.